Well, it is great to be here. Um, and uh, Cindy and I, that's my wife Cindy and our four kids who left earlier. Um, we had the privilege of working with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, for quite a number of years. And uh, if you know anything about YWAM, you'll know that YWAM's uh, founder, Lauren Cunningham, uh, an amazing guy, actually. He's travelled the world. I think he's one of the few people that can document that he's actually been to every single nation of the world uh, doing ministry. And a, a remarkable guy. And I, and I loved, I used to love being where he was speaking because you'd get to hear, you'd always get to hear a really amazing word. Someone who travels so widely and really has his finger on the pulse of what's going on around the world could speak very clearly into, you know, global kind of um, the global context. And it was always powerful. But I discovered after a few years of hearing him several times in one year that he pretty much had the same message that he preached the whole year. So he would have a message, I guess it was something that God had given him and he'd preach it and, uh, and then that was his message for the year, it was like a prophetic thing and I'm, I'm sure he has other messages as well. But uh, I discovered after a while it probably wasn't worth going to hear him speak more than a couple of times in any given year. And it, um, Not that I have anywhere near the background that, that he has, but... It's always a little embarrassing when you turn up to speak at church and you discover there's a bunch of people who were in church last week where you gave the same message. <laughs> and I do feel a little bit like that this week. <laughs> but all I can say is, you must need to hear this again. <laughs> and that works for me, so we'll see. Um, as, uh, as Pete mentioned, we've been doing this series uh, throughout this year on doctrine, and it comes out of a book by a pastor, Mark Driscoll. If you haven't heard of him yet, you will, I'm sure. Um, and he's written a book called Doctrine, funnily enough. Uh, it is available at Kurong if you don't have it, or you can give us a call at TCC and we, we can make one available for you. Uh, it's, it's a great resource book, actually. If, you're not, if you kind of hear someone go, oh, you should get this book, it's about doctrine, you kind of go, yeah, I think not. If that's you, uh, this is a great book for you because it's actually a fairly easy read. It's not too challenging, but it, not, not challenging academically, but it is challenging um, your heart, your spirit, your actions. Um, and I, and I, I find it, and I'm no academic or intellectual, and I find it really a really good read. It's not the kind of thing you sit down and read cover to cover, but to take a chapter at a time, if you want to build your foundations and, and help kind of strengthen uh, your understanding of who God is and how it all works, and it is, it is a great resource, so I'd really encourage you to grab it um, if you can. So this year we've kind of been going through that um, that. Uh, process of looking at all these different areas of doctrine and, and at the moment we're looking at the whole area of the incarnation and uh, so that's what I want to focus on this morning and I'm not going to give you a lot of, um, we'll do a little bit of an explanation of why, why we believe the incarnation or what it is, what the Bible has to say about it but I want to finish off with what does it mean to us, how does that change the way that we live because I think that really is where it's at um, for us. Um, maybe just I'll tell a story before I uh, before I go there, um, in I think it was 1998, uh, Cindy and I were in India for a couple of months, travelling around India. Um, we were not hippies or anything like that. We were travelling with YWAM, uh, Youth with a Mission, just teaching and, and preaching in different places. And it was an amazing trip. We got to travel length and breadth, pretty much from the middle of India right up into the north. And uh, lots of Indian train travel, which is quite an experience if you've ever done it. Um, I don't think you've really experienced India till you've been on a train uh, there, and it was it was fun. And we'd, we'd been up in the mountains in the north. It was kind of the, the foothills of the Himalayas, and beautiful, amazing place, just stunning scenery. And and uh, we'd we'd taken a bus, which is a story on its own, down to a city in the Punjab, uh, which is uh, north of Delhi, uh, called Chandigarh. And Chandigarh is quite a quite a sizable city, not by Indian standards, but it is by ours. And they love their cricket, as they do everywhere in India. And um, we were meeting a guy there who was working amongst the Sikhs. Uh, Punjab is a predominantly a Sikh population. And there's an American guy. And so here we were after um, one of the scariest bus trips in my life, sitting in a bus stop in Chandigarh, among all the noise and the fumes. If you've been there, you'll know what I'm talking about. Just the, the haze of, of exhaust fumes and dust and the sound of... of a million Indians all trying to communicate at the same time. And uh, we're sitting there with all of our luggage thinking, okay, any minute now this guy's going to appear out of the crowd and he's our man. He's the guy that we're going to be staying with and he's kind of going to be showing us around for the next week or so. 
And you, you have in your mind, and, and I mean, we've had a fair bit of experience of doing this kind of thing. You, you can usually pick them out of the crowd, especially when you're in a place like India and there's an American picking you up. You, you, can, you can pick them, you know, when, when they walk in, you know that's them. And that's what we were expecting. But as we sat there for a while, nobody came. And, um, and yeah, there, there's nobody that kind of stuck out of the crowd. And all of a sudden, there's this Sikh guy standing right in front of us, who I, I wouldn't have picked as an American, standing right in front of me going, oh, you must be Chris and Cindy, I'm James or whatever his name was. Scott, thank you. I'm Scott. <laughs> and I, I kind of did a bit of a double take and thought, oh, this can't be right. This can't be right. But, but as we got to know this guy, Scott, he, it turned out he, he's American, he's, he's all American, uh, but he, he's gone to live amongst the Sikhs and in, in Chandigarh, uh, in a city that most of us have never heard about. But here he was, He'd gone there because God had called him to reach the Sikh population and, and he looked just like them. I, I couldn't pick him out of the crowd. The big beard, the turban, dressed the same as them. He spoke Punjabi. Okay, so he learnt their language and he was communicating fairly fluently with them. Now, it did help that his wife was a Punjabi, so sorry they didn't there. But, um, but he, he totally blended in to this place and therefore he had opportunity, although he was different, he had opportunity to reach the Sikhs in, in, in the Punjab that, that most of us, I certainly would never get that opportunity because he looked like they did and he'd made, I guess he'd taken years to learn their language and to, and to take me years to grow a beard to look like that. Uh, but, but there he was and you know I've never forgotten, although I forgot his name obviously, I've never forgotten what an impact that actually made, that he was somebody willing to cross huge cultural barriers as best as he could in the way that he looked and, and he was trying in the way that he, he was thinking his whole worldview in order to meet a bunch of, a bunch of people with the gospel, in order to, to communicate the glory of God to them. And it was such a, such a, uh, a great lesson. Uh, in contrast, a couple of years ago I was in Papua New Guinea uh, with Derek Thomas, who some of you may know, and we're up in the highlands and it was at the end of uh, a week of ministry and they invited us to join them in their celebration kind of march thing that they do in PNG in national costume. And um, I, I remember we were sitting in the back of the car at the time and they'd say, oh, come and join us and you, we'll give you some national costume and you can join us on this march. And I remember thinking, yeah, I don't think so. And I looked at Derek and he looked at me with the same kind of horror and we decided that, well, we'll tell him, if we're here by 9 o'clock in the morning, we'll definitely join you in national dress. But if not, you just go ahead without us knowing that we'd never be there by 9 o'clock. And it turns out that national costume in this particular area was underwear and various plants strapped to their arms and legs and, and, um, and whatnot. And they, would run, they were marching, or well, kind of doing this, this whole thing, all the way down the road with these trees above their heads. And, uh, and I, I felt very Australian and I was proud of it. <laughs> Fully dressed, not a tree strapped to me anywhere. And, um, and I, you know, that the stark contrast of someone who's willing to cross, you know, to, to, to make a giant leap across cultural barriers in order to reach people, and where I was at was almost breathtaking. I was like, I just can't do that. I'm not going to do that. Now, I'll throw out there that my context was completely different, and it was perfectly okay for me not to be involved. <laughs> That's my story anyway. Um, okay, but, but in thinking about those stories, it does... It, for me, it kind of makes very real the whole thought of the incarnation. And um, what I want to do is just take a little while to talk about, well, what is the incarnation? And the word literally means, when we use the word incarnation, it literally means to become flesh. Now, if you've got the, the notes that were handed out, all of the scriptures I'm going to use and definitions you'll find in there. And in fact, there's a lot more in the notes than I'm going to say this morning, um, the scriptures anyway. I won't go through every scripture. Uh, but I do encourage you, if you have the time, uh, to go and have a look at some of these verses because I think what it does is it, it helps us to really um, begin to, to contemplate what it actually meant for Jesus to take on flesh and blood and, and what a huge thing that actually was uh, for him. So the word incarnation literally means that the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who is fully God, he took on flesh and blood, he took on human form, and he became one of us. That, that's what it means. So when we talk about the incarnation, that's what we're talking about. I think John in his gospel um, probably says it the most clearly. Okay. All right. Um, 
and I'll look at two different versions of this. In John chapter 1, verse 14, um, this is what he says. says, And the Word, talking about Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's this word, the Logos, the, the Word become flesh, Jesus, who is God, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now in the uh, the message they, uh, says it a little bit differently. It says it like this, and I, and I like the way it, it goes. It says, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son. Generous inside and out, true from start to finish. So the word became flesh, so God takes on human nature and he moves into the neighborhood. And I think that's a great little... Uh, way of saying it, I think it paints a picture for us that is that is very apt. So, so here is God. So, when we talk about the doctrine of the incarnation, what we're talking about is is the is the truth or the fact, the reality that God Himself took on human form and He moved in with us. He moved into our neighbourhood. He made Himself one of us. And and really, the doctrine of the incarnation, and we could say this about a lot of the doctrine things we talk about, is, is very much at the heart of the gospel. If you take away the fact that, that God himself took on human nature, we take away the power of the gospel. There's, there's nothing left. It, it's such an, a critical part of, of the whole um, story of the gospel, and we'll have a look at that in a moment. So I guess the question is, why would God do that? And I'm just not going to spend a lot of time doing that, but just look at a couple of scriptures. The first one from Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay? So, so in many ways, I, I guess one of the, the key reasons why God took on flesh and blood, why he became one of us, is, was, was to reveal who God is to us. Okay? There's so, there, there is an amount that they could have known about God from, from the word that they had, from the Old Testament, from the oral tradition, from the stories of what God had done. But the greatest way for God to reveal himself to the people was actually to, to become one of them. Okay? And so it makes it very clear, the writer of the Hebrews makes it very clear that, that Jesus himself is the exact, exact imprint of the nature of the Father. He is the radiance of his glory. Okay, we'll look at um, John chapter 14. John says it like this. Okay? Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So here's Jesus having this little um, dialogue with his disciples and they question him about the Father. And he's saying to them, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Okay? Because we're, we're one and the same. We, what you see in me, my nature, my character, the decisions that I make, the way I treat people, uh, I, I'm an exact imprint of my Father. And so there's lots of other scriptures that you can find as well. But, but one of the key reasons why God would become flesh, why he would take on a human nature is that God in his heart wanted to reveal himself to us. He wanted to say in a form that we could easily recognize, well, in theory we could easily recognize that many didn't, okay, but if you did recognize that who he was, then you could see so clearly what the Father is like. So in taking on flesh and blood, and, and, and we have it, of course, recorded in the Gospels, we can learn so much about what, what God himself is like by the actions of Jesus. Okay, the second reason... And, and look, there's probably a bunch of reasons, but I want to stick to um, the main ones. I think it's probably most helpful. Is, is obviously redemption. Um, if, if God wants to redeem a fallen people, okay, so people are no longer, um, well, they're no longer able to, to relate to him in the way that he had intended to happen because of sin, okay, because of the fall, because of what happened with Adam and Eve. Okay, and, and they are in need of a saviour. Something needs to happen in order for that relationship to be restored or for people then to go on to fully experience what it means to live under God's blessing. Okay? For that to happen, God needs to do something about it. Up until that point, they'd had animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. That's what the Jews did. So once a year they would go uh, and, and there would be this um, sacrifice, this atonement sacrifice. 
Okay, so they'd take an animal, they'd slaughter it, it would cover their sins for that year. But, it, but of course it was inadequate. Okay, in Galatians 4, uh, this is what Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that he might receive, so, sorry, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, so at, at the right time, so God wasn't late and he wasn't early. At the right time, he sent forth Jesus, okay, that he would become the atoning sacrifice for us, that we would receive adoption. In other words, we would come, become part of God's family okay, with the full rights um, of, of sons. Okay, Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay, now, that's just one little part of a, of a whole passage. But, but again, the contrast is being made between the Old Testament sacrifice, the blood of animals, which wasn't enough to cover their sin really, and the blood of Jesus, who is God, become flesh, who lived a perfect life, who demonstrated in an ultimate kind of sense what the Father is like and the Father's heart, was able to shed his blood, and of course it was enough to cover the sins of all of humanity. So, so um, really, the, the doctrine of the incarnation and, and this atoning work of Christ, um, it, it can't be separated. So, so Jesus didn't just come to, to give us an example, and this is what some people would say, that Jesus came to live so we would have an example of how to live, and that is definitely one of the reasons why he came. Okay, but you cannot separate... Jesus coming and shedding his blood from our sins from, from the incarnation because as soon as you do that, then there is, no, there is no forgiveness of our sins. It was only because of his blood as God became, become flesh, shedding his blood, it was only because of that shed blood that actually our sins can be forgiven, that God can receive that sacrifice. And so the two things have to go together and I think these are at the heart of the incarnation. They Jesus came to reveal who the Father is, but he also came to shed his blood for us. Let me read um, just a little excerpt from C.S. Lewis. And he's talking about, um, he's, talking about he's using an analogy of a, of a pearl diver and, and thinking about the incarnation and what Jesus did. So he says this, uh, One may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash vanishing, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to colour and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. He and it are both coloured now that they have come up into the light. Down below where it lay colourless in the dark, he lost his colour too. And it's actually, it's a great, um, you know, he, he, he in many ways kind of uh, sums up the whole doctrine of the incarnation, that like a pearl diver who's, who's full of life and energy and colour, diving down into the depths of the ocean, right to the bottom where it's, where it's not glorious and beautiful and pretty, where it's dark and, and disgusting and there's all kinds of stuff down there that you don't want to touch, okay, that's what Jesus did in taking on flesh and blood. Why? So that he could find what was precious, but what was being, you know, uh, its preciousness or beauty is not revealed because of where it was, and take it out of that and bring it back up into the light again. And, and that really is the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus would do that as God, would come down into our realm, into the darkness and ooze and blackness of where we are, in order to lift us, not just to, to meet us there and say there's a better way, but to lift us out of that into what's better, into the light, into where um, you know, we, we know the Father's glory and that actually rubs off on us. Okay, I just want to um, go through, just, and I'm not going to spend very long doing this, but um, at the, as I mentioned, at the heart of the gospel is this, this thought that, that, that God would take on flesh and blood, that he would become one of us. Now, um, I probably wouldn't take much time to look at this, except that there's lots of religions around the world and lots of religious people 
Uh, and most, well, very few of them, if any, denied the existence of Jesus. Jesus is fairly universally recognized as a man who actually existed and who did some amazing things. Okay? Um, what is denied by, by many different people is the, is the deity of Jesus. Okay? Many people agree that Jesus was a man. Not many would agree that he was actually God. Okay? And that's what sets Christianity apart from lots of other religions. That, that we don't just say Jesus was a great man. We actually say that Jesus was himself God. He was God taking on human nature. Okay, now, um, there's, if you read through the scriptures, and, and this is where it becomes a bit of a challenge to limit how many scriptures I've included in my notes, but there's a bunch of them there. There are so many places in the scriptures that refer directly to Jesus being God or indirectly, that it would be impossible to list all of them. In many ways, the whole Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what they do. They're, they're primarily there to show us that God himself became man in the form of Jesus in order to die for our sins. But I'm just going to go through a bunch of them uh, just fairly quickly, uh, just as little evidence that we can find from the Scriptures that Jesus was, in fact, God and not just uh, a man. Okay, the first one is that the Father says that Jesus is God. Now, uh, it's not a direct reference, indirect. Matthew chapter 3, um, after Jesus' um, baptism, he says this, This is my son, okay, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And of course, culturally, uh, to say this is my son is to say we're, we're equal. Okay? So this is my son. So basically the father saying, Hey, this, this man whom I'm blessing, he, he's more than just one of you. He's one of me. Okay? We are one. Um, the demon said that Jesus was God. Uh, Mark chapter 1. Uh, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And you see this all throughout the Gospels, that, that the demons in many ways would, would declare before anybody else that, that Jesus was in fact God. Um, the Bible obviously says that Jesus is God. And I'll just refer back to an Old Testament prophecy um, as we find it in Matthew 1. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means, of course, God with us. Okay? And that's a scripture obviously referring to Jesus and then reflecting back on who Jesus was. Um, okay, he's given the names of God, uh, refers to himself as Son of Man, I think about um, 80 times throughout the four Gospels, and it's a reference back to an, an Old Testament uh, prophecy in Daniel. Okay, where it talked about the Son of Man uh, coming, who's clearly messianic or clearly uh, God. Um, okay, there's lots of other scriptures there. You can have a look at those for yourselves later. Um, he possessed the attributes of God. Uh, 1 Timothy, Paul says this, and he's talking about Jesus. He says, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, sorry, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so here's Paul making this declaration about who Jesus is and those attributes which he uses to describe him can only be used to describe God. Nobody else is like that. Nobody's immortal, invisible, the only God. Uh, Jesus did the works of God. Um, let me just read from John chapter 10. It says, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And so Jesus, again testifying that, even if you don't believe my words when I say I am God, look at what I do. Heal the sick, deliver those who are, who are oppressed by the demonic, setting people free. All of the things which he does, they are the works of the Father. Okay? And it's another testimony, if you like, to the fact that Jesus is in fact God. And, and finally, um, people worshipped him as God. And he never said, stop it. Okay? There are angels that had people try to worship them that immediately said, don't worship me. Okay? But Jesus never said to anyone who worshipped him, uh, the blind beggar, the other people that worshipped him, he never told them to stop. He received their worship. Okay? Now look, that's just a really quick summary. There's so many scriptures that, that affirm from a biblical point of view that Jesus is no, not just an ordinary man or an extraordinary man. He is in fact God. Okay? And, and that's critical to the gospel. So how do we know that? Um, yeah, maybe I'll just throw that up there. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul sums it up, I think, when he says, For in him, in Jesus, 
the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Okay? That's, um, you know, you, you can't say it more succinctly or I don't think more powerfully than that. So how do we know that Jesus was human? How do we know he wasn't just some kind of God wandering around on the planet who didn't, didn't really take on flesh and blood? And okay, you can probably say, well, who cares? Who was thinking that? Nobody. Okay. Um, but but uh, you know, it's easy to think, well, who cares? I just believe it. Well, actually, it does matter. Uh, because it, you know, when we think about Jesus um, having been tempted the same as we are tempted and, we, and yet not sinning, we can draw strength from that, can't we? We think about Jesus having suffered the things that we can suffer, we draw strength from that. But we couldn't if Jesus wasn't really a person. You know, if, if Superman was here and, and he was facing something that we're facing and he manages to get through it okay, it's a bit hard for me to draw strength from that because, well, he's Superman and I'm not. You, you see what I mean? So it is actually important for us to understand that Jesus really was um, human. He really was flesh and blood like we are. And we'll talk about what that means in just a moment, a little bit more. Okay? How do we know that? Well, you only have to read through the, the Gospels again and this is what you see. Okay? He has human attributes. He ate. He had family. He got emotional. He got tired. He suffered in the flesh, it says. He worked. He was tempted. He was part of a community. Um, there's the testimony of others. The way that other people talked about Jesus made it clear that they believed he was just a man. Um, Matthew 13, when he goes back to his hometown, it says this, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Okay? They clearly believed he was just a man. Okay? Nothing special. But, but also, I guess, at a little bit more broader context, that um, we know that Jesus is fully human because it is necessary for the gospel. It's necessary for redemption. And I, and I read this before from Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, okay, so he was real, born under the law, he was within their context, to redeem those who were under the law, those he came to meet, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, so if Jesus wasn't fully human, then the gospel story would fall apart. If he wasn't fully God, it would also fall apart. Okay, that's why the incarnation is really at the heart of it. Okay, so here's the question. And, and if you're a questioning type of person, um, you're probably sitting there thinking of this. Because this is, this, is, this is what I would be thinking. Well, how can that work? How can I really draw strength from the fact that Jesus was fully man because he was also fully God? Have you ever done this? When, you, when there's temptation or you're, just, you're not full of faith or you feel like you can't do the thing you're supposed to do or you can't not do the thing you're not supposed to do. Okay? And, and this thought comes into your mind, well, well Jesus, he, he lived a perfect life, so it must be possible for me to say no. And you go, yeah, but he was God. <laughs> He's God. So it kind of lets me off the hook a little bit. I know I'm not God. Pretty sure I just need to self, make sure you know that. Um, I, I know I don't have, you know, I, I don't have that. So therefore, it's probably okay. Jesus was God. He could say, no, I can't. Not possible. Okay? Well, is that, is that how it is? I think there's much more to the doctrine of the incarnation than that. So let me throw out a few thoughts. Um, when Jesus became man, he didn't cease to be fully God. But what he did do was he chose to continually limit his godlike nature, if you like, or his, his attributes while he was here on earth. Okay? It would be... Um, I don't think there's any really good analogy, but it might be like me going out and playing sport with my children who are younger. Okay? I know, at least for the next couple of years, I could beat them. I can't beat them on the Wii and Nintendo, but I could beat them at the real thing. Okay? But instead of just going out and beating them, I will choose to limit my power, limit my ability to just absolutely smash them, because that wouldn't be fun for anybody except for me. Um, I'll choose to limit that, and I will continually place myself under that limitation so that we can interact well and they can have a good time. Okay, now, does that mean I'm not able to beat them? No, of course I'm able to beat them. 
I'm, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm older, um, so I, I should be able to beat them at that particular sport for a while. Okay? It, so Jesus in becoming flesh does a similar thing. The incarnation is not about Jesus ceasing to be God. It's about him placing himself under limitations under which we are, think that we are also under those limitations in order to be fully one of us as well. So, are there things, I'm going to be, we'll be totally real about it, are there things that Jesus did that we just could never do? Well, of course, there were things. You know, Jesus said to people, oh, your sins are forgiven. Well, we can't do that. Not in the same way that Jesus did it anyway. So, there are times when he did act as God in a sovereign way, which we probably can't do. But for the most part, he chose to live under the same limitations that we have. Therefore, okay, when he faces things and overcomes them, like temptation or you know, whatever it may be, when he goes out and he heals people. You know, have you ever wondered why when Jesus said in John, um, the things that I have done, I'll give you my own paraphrase, paraphrase, are pretty amazing, but you'll go and do greater things than these. Have you ever read that and thought, please. <laughs> I can't imagine that happening. Well, was Jesus lying? Was he just taking us for a ride? What was, he, what was going on? I think that that's a genuine, well, of course I believe it's, he was genuine when he said that, and there's a reason why. Well, because he limited himself to the same limitations we have. Therefore, in order to be the man who he was and have the power that he had and to fulfill his God-given call, he had to live a certain way, and that's kind of what I want to get to. Um, Augustine said this, said, Christ added to himself which he was not, human nature, he did not lose what he was. Okay, and that's really important. So he, he didn't lose what he was, he just added to him something, something that he wasn't. That was human nature. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great um, uh, English theologian, says it this way. Okay, it means that there was no change in his deity, but he took human nature to himself. He chose to live in the world as a man. He humbled himself in that way. He deliberately put limits upon himself. Now, we cannot go further. We do not know how he did it. We cannot understand it. All right? So, um, basically, the thing is, we can never truly get our head around how God did that, but it is important to understand that's what he did. Now, I'll get to why it's important that we understand that's what he did. I, I want to talk about, uh, I guess... Uh, talk a little bit now about, well, how then did Jesus live and how was how he so powerful? How was he so effective? Because I think this has ramifications for us as well. This is important for us. Okay. In John chapter 20, this is what Jesus said. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And even when he had said this, he breathed on them, Sorry, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, you're probably thinking, what, what's that all about? But it's interesting that here's Jesus towards the end of his ministry on the earth during this, this, this last week or so of his life. And he's saying to the disciples, just as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Okay, and now... If, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, you'll know that the last four or five chapters, Jesus predominantly speaking with his disciples. And what's the one other thing he keeps saying over and over again? He keeps talking about how the Father has sent him, how he listens to the Father, how what he does is the things that the Father tells him, how the Father has, has, has taken them on as sons as well. You, you kind of get the picture? Um, so there's this amazing relationship with the Father and he's, he's kind of beginning to open up with them a little bit about um, this whole journey that he's had in being sent to them. And he says to them, just as the Father has sent me, so I sent you. I send you. So, the question is, how did the Father send him? Because in that same manner, and how did he respond to the Father? Because in that same manner, we are also sent, and we also respond to the Father. Okay, so let's explore that a little bit. Um, I want to read from... Uh, Philippians chapter 2, um, and this is quite a, a well-known uh, passage, okay, and I think it will really, um, oh, it's quite a, a, a challenge, so anyway, let's just read it. So it's Philippians chapter 2, start at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay. So here Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and, and he's saying to them, look, I want you to be of the same mind as Jesus. And, and what is the same mind of Jesus? It's the incarnation. It's humility as expressed or demonstrated through the incarnation. Now, Paul is not teaching them the doctrine of the incarnation. He's merely, well, I shouldn't say merely, he's using it as an example of how we should live. He's saying we can take inspiration and a lesson from the way that Jesus was sent and, and, and model that the way that we are sent, the way that we live. And so let, let's have a look at what that might mean. Um, now, what I, what I want to do for the next minute or two is I'm, I'm going to use the word mission, okay, uh, but I want to use it synonymously with life. So when I say mission, I mean life. When I say life, I mean mission. And I don't want to separate life and mission because I don't actually believe they're different. Our life should, is, is, a, is mission. That's what we're called to do. Um, so um, how do we live out... How do we model ourselves on Jesus? Okay? Because the model that Paul uses here is an incarnational life or an incarnational mission. Okay? It says that he humbled himself to become one of us. That, that really is at the heart of what Paul is saying. So I want to throw out um, three things which I think are really important for us. The, the first one is that the incarnational life or incarnational mission is only possible when it's done out of relationship and in obedience to God. So when Paul says to the church in Philippi, I want you to be of the same heart as Jesus, that is only possible okay, out of relationship with and in obedience to the Father. Okay? Did Jesus just of his own accord just decide to come? Well, our understanding of the Trinity might be challenged when we think through that. But, but the truth is that Jesus says, I was sent Okay? And he didn't argue the point. He didn't sit down, I, I assume, with the Father and say, isn't there another way? Which is what I would have done. Isn't there another way? He, he didn't argue about it. He, he, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. He, he went. He was sent by the Father. He came in obedience to the Father. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, all throughout Jesus' ministry, remember he's fully God as well as fully man, but limiting himself to the same constraints for the most part that we have his relationship with the Father doesn't seem to, well, it doesn't waver. It doesn't seem to change, even though he's, he's taken on a different form. Uh, he receives affirmation for the, from the Father. We, we read that before. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He knows the will of the Father. In John uh, 5.19, uh, it says this, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, another himself, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And so Jesus, knowing what the will of the Father was, it has to come through relationship. How could he say, I only do what the Father wants unless he knew what the Father wants? Um, it comes out of relationship. It comes out of obedience. Um, it obviously comes out of spending time with the Father. And there's plenty of scriptures throughout the New Testament in the Gospels where Jesus goes off and spends time with the Father. They're not unusual. Okay? There's quite a lot of them. He might go off and spend time in prayer. He might be in the midst of a crowd, but there's this sense of, of relationship and him hearing what's on the Father's heart and walking in obedience to it. I think John in particular mentions that um, a number of times. So, number one, if we are being sent as Jesus was sent, 
It has to mean incarnational. Okay? Humbling ourselves. Okay? We'll come we'll come to this in a second. Okay? But I think that only happens. I think that's only possible when it comes out of our relationship with the Father and in obedience to him. The incarnational life or incarnational mission, I think, is only powerful when it's, when it's worked out under the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, if I can just quote Martin Lloyd-Jones again, this is what he says. He says, but, but we believe this, in order that we might live this life as, sorry, in order that he, Jesus, might live this life as a man while he was here on earth, he did not exercise certain qualities of his Godhead. That was why he needed to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit without measure. So, let's come back to that thought. If Jesus was fully God, but yet he limited himself to the same constraints under which we are also under in order to be fully man, how could he be so effective? Well, he could be so effective because he lived totally by and under the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, Luke, I think, illustrates this probably as good as, the, um, or maybe a little bit more clearly than some of the other Gospels. In the beginning of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, what happens? Jesus goes and gets baptized. And after he comes out of the water, it says that he's praying, and a dove descended in, in bodily form, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. Okay, then immediately after that, he goes off, and what happens? He goes into the wilderness where he's tempted, if you're familiar with the story. And it says that he was led by the Spirit. And there's this constant reference to the Spirit leading him and helping him to overcome in that context. And then he comes out of that time and he begins his ministry. And what does it say? It says he was led by the Spirit again. Okay, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that Jesus, even though he's fully God, under the constraints of man, was still able to raise the dead, was still able to heal the sick, was still able to see people set free, was still able to sit with all kinds of people and to love them and, and, and to reveal the glory of the Father and the love of the Father and create a sense of community around him, not because he was exercising his God-like, his God abilities, but because he did it under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit came upon him. Okay? Um, why is that important? Well, because Jesus said, just as I have been sent, so I send you. And I guess I, I, I'll throw out there, I don't think it's possible to live an incarnational life or incarnational mission to reach people like Jesus reached them unless we do it under the power of the Holy Spirit. We just can't. We don't have the resources. We can't just suddenly go, I think I might step into my deity for a moment to try and get that done. We don't have that ability like Jesus did. But you know what? He didn't do that either. He relied upon the work of the Holy Spirit in his life and he saw huge amounts of fruit come from it. Thirdly, and hopefully this will pull it all together uh, for us. You know what? And, and this is where Philippians, I think, is most powerful. Philippians chapter 2. Is that the incarnational life or the, the incarnational, incarnational mission is most clearly illustrated by the giving up of our rights for the sake of others. You know, it says, um, in, in Philippians 2, it says that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You know what? He could have. He was God. He wasn't giving up something bad. He wasn't giving up something he shouldn't have. It wasn't kind of a grey area. He was God. He had every right to it, but yet he gave it up. Why? For the sake of others. To demonstrate the Father's love to others. And we are those others. He made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. Can you, it's hard for us, I think, to really get our heads around this. How can God become a servant? How, how can that happen? I mean, I could become a servant. That's, that's probably a little bit more realistic. But how could God become a servant? Um, I remember somebody saying to me years ago, and... Uh, and, and at the time, I come, came under great conviction, and I still do, I confess. But they said to me, Chris, you know you're really a servant when people treat you like one and you don't mind. You know you're really a servant when people treat you like one and you don't mind. Okay? Now, I've acted like a servant lots of times. People treated me like one on many occasions, and I never liked it. <laughs> I still don't really like it. But isn't it interesting? 
Isn't it interesting? I think it, it, it kind of reveals something that's in our heart. You know, we, we know it's right to serve. We know it's right to give up our rights, to lay down our life. But when people take it for granted, oh, we get so upset about it. Why should we? Ouch. That's hard. Okay, but that is how Jesus was sent. He most clearly, most powerfully demonstrated his love for us in that he took on the nature of a servant. He decided not to grasp, grasp something which was rightfully his, something that he could have grasped. He, he could have done that. But he chose not to hold on to that. He chose to limit, it in, limit himself like we might limit ourselves for the sake of children or people that we're you know, wanting to interact with. He chose to do that in order to demonstrate love for us, in order to carry through God's plan, not just to, to, to get his own way, but, but to demonstrate love for us, that we might also know the, the glory of the Father and, and live in the blessing of knowing his glory. Do you kind of you see what the, the big deal is? Because it really is a big deal. It's most clearly demonstrated by giving up rights. Incarnational living, relationship with the Father, under the power of the Holy Spirit, for the sake of others. Now, um, let me... How does this play out in everyday life? Because I actually think that this, this verse where Jesus says, as I, as I have been sent, so I send you, I think is huge. I think it's a really, really big challenge for us. And, and, and I think it's big, no matter what your context is, where you live, what kind of place that God has put you in, this is how we have to live. Um, and, and I'll tell you, this is countercultural. This is so swimming upstream in our culture, where, where we're told um, that, that we have everything we need, that we don't, we don't need God. Well, we do need him. We're told uh, that, that, you know, if... We're, actually, we're told so many different things that, that would say we don't need the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, even by, uh, by the church at times. But you know what? We can never do what God calls us to do without the Holy Spirit. We're told that we need to get what we want, set ourselves up, be comfortable, all of these kinds of things. You know what? That's not how Jesus was sent. So I'm not quite sure how we've got to the place where we think that's how we're being sent. Um, I, you know, I, I think about my own context and where I'm at and where maybe we are at as a church, and I'm, I guess I'm realizing more and more that we will stagnate and then dissipate. <laughs> I think we will get less and less until we get to that place where we're thoroughly willing to humble ourselves as Jesus did and give up our rights in order to demonstrate his love for others. I think the time has come of grabbing all our rights has come to an end. And maybe, and this is my thoughts, this is not prophetic, maybe what we see happening around the world with economic uncertainty, maybe this is God's way of helping us out in this whole little deal. <laughs> maybe it's his way of saying, hey, you know, all those things you've been holding on to, they're actually been a hindrance to you. You're not, you're not reaching out. You're not showing, demonstrating my love, my glory to people the way that you could have because you're holding on to some other things which you don't need to hold on to. They're not bad things necessarily, although they can be, okay? but they certainly do hinder us demonstrating the love of the Father for others. Now, please don't hear me say, I, I, don't hear me, I'm not just talking about mission, I'm not just talking about outreach or having a big thing. You know, it's interesting that the context of Philippians is their relationships with one another. You know, I think it's sometimes easier to give up our rights and to, to be expecting the Holy Spirit to come and to be all prayed up to go out and do some big evangelistic event than it is to act like Jesus would with the person sitting in the row behind us at church who we're just fed up with. So that's actually the context that Jesus, that, that Paul, sorry, is talking about in Philippians. Uh, you know, what's he say? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from my love, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Then goes on, let Jesus be your example. So, just in, what am I saying? I'm saying, you know, it's, you, it's, like, it's great for us, um, 
It's great to be here with you this morning. And I'll tell you, we are, I am incredibly excited about what God is going to do here at the project. And I, and I said this to Pete, don't tell anyone at TCC, but if I was in a different position, in other words, I wasn't paid by TCC to be one of their pastors, I'd be here. I'd be joining you because I, I think it's, God's doing something here. Um, and, and it's really exciting. But you know what? I realize that this is, in order for this to work, it's got to be incarnational. We've got to model ourselves on Jesus. We've got to give up our rights for one another. That means not getting your own way. That means not having the last word. That means forgiving when it just sucks to forgive. That means maybe going a slightly different direction than it would be your preference. That means staying here and not leaving when the worship doesn't quite kick the way that you might have anticipated or the preaching or the whatever. Okay? That's, that's giving up rights. That's incarnational. That's saying, no, I might have a right to something else, but I'm going to let that go because I'm going to want to demonstrate the love and the glory of the Father with the people that I'm, that I'm with, that he's put me with. You're going to need the Holy Spirit. You, ju- you just will. If you want to transform this community, these people, this village, Highfields, the people, the neighborhood of TCC, this school, okay, just like Jesus, you will need the Holy Spirit to come. But all of that will have no longevity. You'll find it hard to do it without burning yourself out unless it comes out of relationship with the Father and in obedience to Him. That's the foundation of it all. Okay. But, but, you know, when we live like that, that's, that's incarnational living, incarnational mission. That's powerful. That's why Jesus was so powerful. Let me pray, and then we'll finish it right there. Father, thank you that... Um, I just thank you for just... It's not just a doctrine or a, or a concept. It's a reality that, that you would choose to take on flesh and blood for us. You would choose to limit yourself because of us to demonstrate your love for us, to demonstrate your glory, to show us what you're like, but to, but to pay for our sins, which we could never do for ourselves, which no animal could ever truly cover. God, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you chose to do that. Thank you that when you were sent by the Father, you, you, you came. Thank you that you humbled yourself, not just once, but you kept humbling yourself over and over and over again, that when people treated you like a servant, you didn't complain. You forgave. You offered hope. You offered life. Lord, thank you for the fact that, that I just thank you, Jesus, that when you said, so, as I've been sent, so I send you. It's not just a challenge that we can't quite uh, achieve. We can achieve it because we're loved by the Father. We've got the Holy Spirit who's been sent to us and we've got an amazing model to, to emulate. Lord, help us to do that in our own context, with our own families, in our own situations. Lord, help us to, to live that way, to live out of a security of being loved and affirmed and, and sent, to live under the power of the Holy Spirit where we see you at work and to be willing to give up our rights to demonstrate that love to others. Lord, help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.